Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. So two and a half years we've lived with COVID, and what have we learned? Well, one thing we've learned, and this isn't going to be a lecture about COVID. I know you're all getting really nervous right now. But one thing we've learned in the last two and a half years is how risk tolerant we are as individuals and as society. What are we willing to put up with? What restrictions will we take on that are imposed upon us or will we voluntarily take on to mitigate or avoid risk altogether? And the answer varies widely, as, as, as wide as everybody in this room. Like, people handle things differently, right? And people are comfortable with different levels of risk. Some people just don't care. Throw caution to the wind. I'm going to die one day. Don't care if it's this or something else. Like, I will do the riskiest things possible. Just don't care, right? And then there are other people who for lots of reasons, are much more risk-averse. And they go, oh, I can't, I can't do that. I can't go here. I can't be part of that because of the potential of this. And I'm looking after these people who are in these kind of medical conditions or, or whatever. And, and sometimes there are very good reasons to be risk-averse. And sometimes there are less good reasons, right? Sometimes we're risk-averse because we're just scared people. And we're just fearful and blame society for making us fearful. Maybe it's a temperament thing, nurture versus nature. I, I don't know. But there's, there's just a range out there of how risk tolerant we are. Um, and and, and that's, that's something we need to consider because COVID aside, there are lots of things that are risky in life, right? Almost all of life requires risk. It requires you to step out into the unknown. Taking a new job, it's risky, isn't it? I mean, it, could, it might not work out well. Dating someone, super risky. So much risk there. They could be terrible. You don't know yet. They could just be fooling you. Marrying someone, very risky. Way, like, why does anybody do it? Like, all in to commit to somebody for, till death do you part. You don't even know how you're going to feel next month. Never mind, like, 30 years from now, 50. Like, that is risky behavior. Moving across the country. Very risky, especially if you don't have family or friends there. You're like, oh, I'm going to pack up and I'm going to move. Like, there's risk built into all of life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple and you're trying to follow after him, there's like another layer of, of risk in life as well because Jesus tells us to live by faith and faith is a risky thing to, to step out when you don't know how it's all going, going to work out. But I don't think we should be taking risks, um, you know, sort of willy-nilly, right? Like, I don't, we, we shouldn't just be, like, crazy reckless. This is the one life we have. We want to make the most of it. We want to be good stewards of whatever God has given us. But I do think we need to take risks, and they need to be calculated risks. And I want to talk about that in light of, of, the, of the, the, the text that we're looking at today. We have been studying through uh, the book of Ruth. And um, it's a four-chapter book. This is chapter three today. If you missed the last two weeks, please go back online, our YouTube channel, go to our website, uh, podcast, and listen to the last two weeks so you're up to date on the story. I'm going to summarize it here really quickly. Uh, a woman named Naomi and her husband, don't worry about his name, he's dead in verse three, so it doesn't really matter about him. But there's a woman named Naomi with this dude, and they move to a foreign country. They move away from a famine in Israel. They move down to Moab. While they're there, her two sons get married to Moabite women. 
So you have an ethnic sort of intermarrying thing going on. They, while she's there, both of her sons die and her husband dies, and she is left with two daughters-in-law, no men in the picture at this point. One, and so she decides to move back to around her people in Israel in Bethlehem. And as she's moving back, one of her daughters-in-law decides to leave, Orpah. She goes back to her people in the Moabites. And her other daughter, named Ruth, stays with her. So now you have... Ruth, who's a Moabite woman, moving to Israel. So you started with an Israelite woman moving to Moab. Now you have her daughter, a Moabite woman, moving into Israel. So she, Ruth is now a foreigner in a strange land, and they move back to be around family in Bethlehem. That ends chapter 1. Into chapter 2, uh, Israel had been under famine, but things are getting better, and there's a harvest, and there's barley. It's kind of autumn, and it's just like a great time of year, and things are going a lot better in Israel. And... Uh, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for widows. And, and so Naomi's there. She's got her daughter-in-law, Ruth. They're struggling to make ends meet. Ruth goes to work, and so she goes to the fields um, to take any wheat and, and grain that is left over. So uh, farmers in Israel were instructed, don't, don't get every piece of wheat out of your field. Don't be as, as efficient as possible. And instead, leave a little bit on the edges of your field, and if you drop some wheat, just leave it. Don't go back and pick up every little bit to maximize the dollars out of your acreage. Leave some so that other people can come who are needy and get it. It was a way that God uh, had designed to provide for the poor. So Ruth being one of those, she comes along, she's gathering. Uh, she sees other women working and other people doing this. And uh, she gets the attention of a guy named Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the field. He's a, he's a wealthier dude. Things are going well for him. They meet. Um, a lot of people like to look at this as an ancient love story. There is maybe some of that. But they meet. Uh, and, and Boaz is very impressed by Ruth um, about what, what a hard worker she is. Um, and he gives her some grain for her and Naomi to take care of. He knows who she is. It's a small town. People know about foreigners in town and whatever. So um, Boaz is very impressed with her. And um, this, is, this is potentially a cool thing, a, a cool relationship that has been built. There's this foreigner woman who's in need. And then there's a wealthy landowner who's local there that he, he has and is able to provide. This takes us to chapter 3. And in Ruth chapter 3, I ain't going to lie to you, it gets a little saucy. It gets a little like... Ancient world, this is a little bit like, they did what? Are you? So this is like, uh, yeah, so chapter three gets a little like Ruth late night TV version of, uh, of, of the book. And so, um, so, so anyway, she meets Boaz, Ruth and Boaz meet, and, and you just kind of leave it there. And then we get into chapter three and it starts this way. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So we don't know for how long, but they, they've met, and Boaz goes kind of quiet. He doesn't call. You know, he doesn't text. They met. He just ghosted. He just went quiet. And, and Naomi, uh, she's a little anxious to make something happen here for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. I, I, I sort of picture Naomi at this point as like Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, who's like working very hard to make sure all of her daughters are married off to eligible young men because, and, and, you, and you can sort of laugh at it, but you go like, you know, Victorian England and ancient Israel, there's some similarities there. Um, women cannot provide for themselves, and if they don't marry well, and if they're not well cared for, like it, it, it may not go well for them. And this is a this is a, a culture where um, women are a little more like property. Now, we can rail against that and go, oh, man, this is terrible in the patriarchy and, and all that. And I get that. But just take it for what it is and understand the culture of the time. 
this is the deal. And, and so Naomi and Ruth do not have good prospects. Uh, they can go try to grab some wheat, and that's a good short-term plan, but it's not a long-term plan. So Naomi is working, and she is trying to figure out um, what, what can be done. And she's like, hey, um, and she says to Ruth, she's like, hey, isn't Boaz, didn't you meet him, remember? Um, he, he's our relative, and he, uh, you were with his women. And then she says, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Um, and, and, and it's a weird, a weird scenario. When, when they met, um, if you remember this from chapter 2, Rachel went through it with you last week. When, when they met, um, Boaz's first question after seeing Ruth was, whose woman is this? Which is so, that's the patriarchy, right? It's so like, well, who does she belong to, right? That was his kind of first question, which isn't the most like romantic greeting card sort of. I, I mean, it's just like, who does she belong to? Anybody claim, right? But it's a, it's a thing to, to figure out of like the way society is structured. So they meet, they have that, uh, and, it, and, and then Naomi's like, hey, um, and she's going to hatch up a plan here. She says, um, hey, Boaz is, is winnowing on his threshing floor tonight. So the way that works, um, you have... Uh, You'd harvest this wheat, and there's, there's the wheat and the grain, and then there's the chaff, which you don't want. So you take a winnowing fork, it's this pitchforky kind of thing, and the way it works is, like, I guess, you sort of throw it up in the air, and the chaff will blow away because it's lighter, and the grain will fall to the ground. So it's a way of separating out the wheat and the chaff and the, the grain that you want. And so at the end of the harvest, you would do this. You would throw this out, and it's a threshing floor is what's called this area, and you'd have the grain left over. So Naomi knows this. She understands how the harvest works in Israel. She's explained it to Ruth. She's like, hey, by the way, Boaz is going to be uh, at the threshing floor tonight, um, which doesn't sound like the setup of like a good date. It's not like he's going dancing tonight, and he was wondering if you're going to be there. It's, not, it's, like, it's like, no, he'll have been working hard all day. I know where he's going to be, um, and he'll be at the, the, the threshing floor uh, by the way, Ruth, you should know this. And so she comes up with this plan that's a little bit saucy. Verse 3, here's what happens. This is what she tells Ruth. Wash, always a good start, bathe her. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover, uh, th then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. All right, this is weird. So he sa she says, all right, Ruth, he's at the threshing floor, he's been working all day, go over there at night. She's like, put your perfume on, like, look nice, get your nails done. Go over there, put your cloak on. Now the cloak, this, is, this symbolizes something. She would have, to this point, because her husband had died sometime before that, she would have maybe dressed more like a widow. But if she changes into, as Naomi is trying to tell her to do, she will appear more as, I'm an available woman to be married. So she's like, all right, we've mourned. You, you know, you lost your husband. We've done this for a long time now. Um, put some perfume on. Put your nice coat on and go over there and, and, and hang out. Go over to the threshing floor. That's where he's going to be. Now, now men, when they, would, when they would do this, they would sleep there at the threshing floor. And they would do this to protect the grain that they had gotten. It's worth a lot of money. So in, in one sense, the harvest and the grain and all that, he's now effectively come into a lot of money. 
and he's going to stay there to protect it. Otherwise, people are going to come steal it. So she says, go over there and, 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 and visit him while he's there. Um, this actually, though, culturally, this would have been a time that prostitutes would come because they know here's a guy who's feeling good and has got money. Um, and so they would often get visited by prostitutes there. Um, and so this plan of go hang out near him at this hour, in this moment, at the harvest, all that, is a little bit risky because it could look really bad. You're, you've got the perfume on, the cloak on, you're going to go hang, and just hang out there. And she's even like, wait till he's had his food and drink and he just is kind of chilling there. Just go, uh, go, go hang out and lie, uncover his feet, weird, right? And then just lie down. Don't do anything, just hang out near him, okay? Um, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he had a few. He, okay, let's, let's, that's what that is, right? He's like, he's feeling pretty good, a little, little loose, a little relaxed, right? As heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and, and, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Whoa, where did you come from? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, so he's had a few drinks. He's lying down real, real, real good, and she comes in. All she does is uncover his feet, and then she lays there. Now, a lot of commentators, you can go back and read this if you, if you look at the meaning of all these things. Um, a lot of people, especially in the modern world, want to add a lot of sexual tension into this story. If she's uncovering his feet, what does that really mean? Is this like a euphemism for something else? Is she doing something really, uh, is, this, is this really like extra? She's being really aggressive here. Well, okay, she uncovers his feet, she lays down. Um, one suggestion I think this actually works is, uh, if your feet are uncovered, you're going to wake up, right? You know this, right? Like if your foot gets out of the blanket, you're like, oh, gosh. And then you like, so, so the breeze, you know, it's like real subtle. Uncover it, just wait. He'll wake up eventually. He wakes up. And this, this actually uh, doesn't have to be a, a, a sexual thing. In fact, there's, there's good indication that their relationship is, is pretty pretty high, uh, high character, above bar, you know, it, it, there's not the, these things, it, it's, it's not as bad as it looks, there's a couple indications of that in here, and then when he wakes up, he's like, wait, who's this, it's dark, okay, and, and she's like, no, it's Ruth, you know me, you know, I've been working in your field, whatever, and then she says to him, um, spread your wings to, to cover, oh, spread, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Um, this was an idea brought up in the last chapter. In fact, when, uh, when they met, the, Boaz said to Ruth, um, basically like, may the Lord cover you with his wings. May the Lord shelter you under his wings. Like, you're, you're a foreigner, you've had a rough life, you're a widow, I understand all that. May God, like, take care of you. This blessing he prays over her. And Ruth shows up in the middle of the night, and effectively she's saying, hey, why don't you be the answer to your own prayer? You wanted God to put his wings and cover me? You know, you could do that on behalf of God. You could actually care for me and, and Naomi. Um, why don't you, you know, you, all these prayers, like, you be the answer to your prayer. 
um, you be the hope and change we've been waiting for, or whatever, right? She comes to him sort of that way. Um, and, 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 and so they have this sort of encounter. Verse, verse 10, let's, let's read on. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for you are my fellow townsmen. You, for all my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Okay. We can't, we can't overlook the obvious age difference between the two, right? He's closer to Naomi's age. She's going to be younger. Um, and so it's this older man, younger woman thing. And he sort of points it out. He's like, wow, you're... You, you actually have interest in me, and you could easily go with, like, young guys with a six-pack. And you chose me. Like, this is really pretty cool. Now, the obvious thing we want to say there, because we're modern, cynical people, is you're kind of rich. It doesn't hurt. Like, I know you don't have a six-pack, but you do, like, own some things, and that ain't nothing, you know? Because we see that all the time, right? We see that in culture. You might see, you know, oh, she's young and pretty and he's old and wealthy. And you're like, how did they get together? And you're like, I think we know how they got together. Like, we can figure this out. Uh, it just happened this month. Uh, the owner of the New England Patriots, Robert Kraft, just got married. 81 years old and he married a woman who's 48, okay? We all know what's going on there. It's fine. Like, it, and, and I don't know them. Maybe it's true love. I, I'm just saying he's an, a billionaire, right, I, on his last legs, <laughs> Right, and so there's there's an arrangement there. It's like, hey, I love you, I love you too, but also, um, but but besides all that stuff, that we can be very cynical about that. Um, he points out that she is a woman of character. Ruth is. She's a woman of character. She's a she's a godly woman. Um, she's loyal. She works hard. He he even says all the townsmen at the city they they speak well of her. This is what's written about in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, where this wife of noble character is described. And one of the things it says about this, this woman of noble character is that, you know, at the city gates, people speak well of her. This place where, and you'll see it in chapter 4, this place where the men of the town come together and they discuss what's happening in the city and how to care for people and what's going on. And um, in that place, everybody is speaking well of Ruth. So she has... A, a, a strong reputation of being a hardworking, loyal woman of character. And so he acknowledges that, um, and he sees that, and he knows her situation, and he knows that he can, um, if, if he were to marry her and bring her into his family, that would save her and Naomi. But there's a final obstacle, and Boaz being a man of character isn't going to bypass it. There's a final obstacle. There's, a, there's another relative uh, who would be next in line to marry Ruth and to care for the family. Um, and so Boaz says, we need to check and make sure this other guy doesn't want to do this first. If not, I will marry you, but he's first in line. Again, super weird to us, right? Patriarchy and passing women around like cattle and things like that. And we're like, that is, like, what on earth? Like, this is not a great situation. Understand all that but just understand how the ancient world works. The ancient world is harsh and violent and dangerous in, in many ways. 
and men who are physically strong have an advantage in an environment like that, and they can either use that advantage to dominate people, which there was some of that, but they can also use that advantage to care for and protect those who are physically weaker, women and children. And so the, the, the situation was set in the ancient world that men would care for women and children around them because to leave them exposed to the elements is to potentially leave them to be, to be killed, which is not good for women, it's not good for men, it's not good for the future of humanity. Like, they had to have a system to care. And so in this system in Israel, if you were widowed, you're in a bad situation because you can't work, you'd probably be caring for children or something like that. And so there was a system set up that there would be a relative who would marry you. Oh, your, your husband died, he was my brother or something, I will marry you so that you can be in the protection of my family. Boaz understands this, Ruth may not entirely understand that because she's Moabite and this isn't her culture. Boaz understands it, and he says, actually, someone else should do this first. They have the first right of refusal, I guess, as you could look at it that way. And then he tells her, lie down till the morning. Now, again, modern commentators want to, want to read something sexual into that, but I don't think that's actually the case. Um, in fact, there's this weird timing about how careful he is about when she leaves. Listen, the next verse. Uh, so, he, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So there's this weird timing thing about when she leaves. And he goes, I don't want it to look like you just came to the threshing floor in the middle of the night because everybody knows what that means. That's going to look like prostitution. It's going to, your, your reputation is not going to look good. Um, but we're going to arrive, they arose before one could recognize each other. And it's still a bit dark. And he gives her grain and barley to take, probably to take back to Naomi, but also as a way of, of maybe showing she came here to get food and I gave her some food. They're, they're like, they're, no, no sexual things were done here. Like, and you're going to go early in the morning, avoid this walk of shame thing. Like, that, that, that was the idea. Um, so she goes, so he gives her grain, she goes back to see her mother. And her mother, as, as Mrs. Bennett does, is dying to know how this went, right? So the next verse, verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Yo, if you're going to marry her, give a gift to the mother-in-law. Just good suggestion. Just a great strategy. He's not an idiot, right? It's like, hey, take this for your mom. Tell her, send her my love. Tell her she's great. Um, and then and she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So there's this ambiguity, right? We don't know if this other person is going to step in to claim some sort of ownership over the land that they might own and Ruth and things like that, or if Boaz is going to do this, and she says, just hold on, They'll, th this, this will get figured out. Again, the powerlessness of women in this, in this culture and in this structure, right? She's like, you're just going to have to wait for the man to figure out what he wants to do here, and it, it'll, it'll happen today, because this, is, this isn't going to linger. This one's going to go. Okay, so um, let's talk about some applications of that whole idea for us today. A lot of people, when they uh, talk about the story, and I thought about doing this with you, um, they, they talk about some applications around dating. Um, 
And, and maybe there are some, you know. Uh, it, it's a little hard to overlay such a culture, a culture that's so foreign to ours and, and compare that to, you know, Tinder. You know, like, you know, it's the, Tinder's the threshing floor of, like, no, we don't have to do that. Um, I, I think there are, some, there are some principles there, and I, I thought about an entire 10-minute thing here, but I just, just real quickly I would just say um, these, are, these actually are people of character, and they, and they ask God, and, and that kind of stuff matters. And I think, and I think that mattered to them, and I think it, it can still matter to us and can help us make um, some, some good decisions there. Uh, but I, I don't want to make this about that. I think there's a broader application for all of us, and I think it's about risk. Um, Naomi and Ruth are in a very hard spot. They are in a valley of their lives. They're widows. They're grieving. They are um, poor. They are having to get what they can from the margins of society. Um, And that is discouraging, to say the least. Like, they're in a dark spot. And, And I think the story... Maybe it bottoms out at the beginning of chapter 2 when they come back to Israel and it starts to get better when Ruth meets Boaz and it's starting to get better now because it looks like there's hope, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Their, their situation may be improved. They may be redeemed from such a hard situation. But um, they have to take some risks. And, and I think that's applicable to us because we may find ourselves at the bottom, in the valley, in the darkness, in the hard spot. And how do we get out? How do, we, how do we move forward when we seem like we're surrounded by a lot of bad options and there's not, it doesn't seem like we, we can do anything? I think the obvious answer for Christians of how you move forward when things are hard is to have faith. That's what we say. We, I preach about it. Preachers preach about it all the time. Faith is, I mean, I, I, would, I would guess that if you think about being a disciple of Jesus, faith is one of the first concepts that might come to your mind. Oh, I'm a person who lives by faith in Jesus. And we talk about that all the time, and it's a good thing. In fact, it's one of the best things. If you go read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, take note of any time Jesus is surprised. He's like blown away. If you're God in the flesh, there's probably not many things that would blow you away, right? You know, someone's like, hey, this... Horse won the Kentucky Derby, and you're like, yeah, I knew that. Hey, they're going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I know. Like, I'm God. I got that. Like, there's not, there's not much you could be told that would blow you away. And what you see Jesus blown away by in the Gospels is faith. When people just risk and step out, and he's like, I ha-, he'll say, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. He, 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 which is a way, when he, when he says that, it's a way of almost nudging the Israelites to say, like, this foreigner has more faith than you do, which is what Ruth is. Ruth is a foreigner exhibiting a lot of faith that the Israelites should probably stand up and take notice of. So Jesus commends faith. He's blown away by faith. We are called to live by faith. And, and, and how do we do that? Well, we, we live by faith by taking calculated risks. You see, faith feels like risk. What does it feel like to live by faith? It feels like you're doing something risky. You're stepping out into the unknown. You're, you're putting a foot out there, and you don't know if it's going to land on something solid. It is risky to do anything when you don't know how it will turn out. It's risky to fall in love. It's risky to quit a job. It's risky to take a job. It's risky to move across the country. Those examples I gave you, this stuff is risky, and this stuff in, in many ways is what it is like to live by faith. This kind of faith and the risk feeling that goes along with that 
really is the basis of all good relationships. This is why it requires faith to us, for us to live um, in a relationship with God, because that's how relationships are. They require faith, because you don't know. They require risk. If, if you're going to love anyone or anything, it's risky, because you just don't know how it will be reciprocated. You don't know if you love a person, if they're going to burn it down with you. You don't know if you commit to follow God and have faith in him and love him, if he's going to disappoint you. And for a lot of us, we would rather not risk. We're risk averse. I'd rather not follow God than follow a God who might disappoint me and let me down. I get that. There's a potential of pain when we love anyone. And so Ruth lives by faith here, and she takes a calculated risk. How does she do it? Four things and then we're done. Number one, these are quick. Um, she prays. Now, you don't see that a lot. Her prayers aren't listed out. But when she meets Boaz in chapter two, there's this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord also bless you, which is a form of prayer. It's one of the first things that Boaz and Ruth do when they see each other. It's this form of prayer. Hey, may God, I'm asking God to bless you. Um, you, that shows up there. And it's not written down, but how often do you think Naomi prayed about her situation, that it would get better, that Ruth would find an opportunity, that, that there would be a future, that they would get food, that they would have hope again, that, that she could have a grandchild, that like all of these things. Uh, prayer is also is all, is in the background here. Um, so if we're going to take calculated risks, we pray first. We actually... Uh, months back at Area 10, we gave you a screenshot that you could use as your screensaver on your phone, which I still have it on mine. When I open up my phone, it says, pray first. And it is just a reminder, whatever you're about to seek here in your phone is the answer to life. Pray first. Pray first. Start there. This is how we take calculated risks. We start by asking God, hey, what is your will here? What do you want? Second step, seek godly advice. Ruth is a foreigner in a foreign place. She doesn't know the customs. She doesn't know the culture. She doesn't know how this works. And so uh, she has to go to someone older and wiser and say, what should I do? And Naomi's like, all right, here's the plan. Do this. Do it exactly this way. And she's seeking out advice from someone who, who understands. And um, this, is, this, is, this is how we take calculated risks. We, we pray and then we seek godly advice. Many times what I've noticed and I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen this in the lives of lots of people around. We don't seek godly advice. We seek advice from the people who would tell us what we want to hear. Right? You've done that. I've done that. Like, if you want to break up with someone, it is not hard to find people who will tell you to break up with that person. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you need to get, drop that zero and get you a hero or whatever. Like, you, it's not hard to find somebody who's going to like, oh, yeah, you don't need no man. Like, you don't, like, whatever. Um, we, we seek that stuff out. It's like, I kind of want to do this. I'm going to go f- seek advice from people who are going to tell me what I want to hear. And godly advice sometimes is what you want to hear, but sometimes it's not. And if you're going to really seek it out, go to godly people who are wise, who are patient, who are probably older than you, who have been there, who have struggled, who have come out on the other side. There really are those people in this church. One of the things I love about this church is the range of ages and backgrounds of the people that are here. And there are people you can seek out when you are in a hard decision and say, hey, can we have coffee? Like, I'm struggling through this decision. And you ask them to pray for you, and you ask them for godly advice. What, what, what might God be trying to show me in this? Seek those people out. Um, and, and sit, sit down with them. Um, seek godly advice. Number three, make a plan. 
If you're going to take a calculated risk, you need to make a plan. Ruth does not wing this. This is a detailed plan. Now, she needs to improve her situation. Naomi needs to improve her situation. They could wing it, I suppose, but that probably has a low likelihood of success. Like, there's a detailed plan here that she needs to stick with. Hey, do it exactly, uh, do it exactly this way. Because there's a lot of ways this could go wrong. But as you've probably heard in business, right, failing to plan is just planning to fail. Proverbs 16, verse 3 says this, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So you pray, seek godly counsel, you seek the Lord, and he's going to establish the plans. He's going to take care of it. Um, and, and there's like a, a partnership there that, that, that God works within your plans, but you, you should have a plan, actually, of what you want to do. And then finally this, number four, take action. Take action. Um, you have to move. You have to take a step. So often we get paralyzed in the other steps here. We go like, I'm just going to pray about this until God does something. And then you pray and pray and pray and nothing happens. Or you say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm planning. I'm just going to seek out advice. I'm going to ask everybody I know what I should do. And I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait. And then and it, sound, it can sound good. I'm just waiting on God. Or it can sound like procrastination. I just, I'm scared to. At some point, you have to take action and actually step up and do the thing. You can't just sit there and keep seeking advice. Uh, as I was reading this, it, it sort of reminded me of how uh, God parted the, the waters um, earlier in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they flee from Pharaoh's army. If you've seen like the Prince of Egypt or like older, the Charlton Heston Moses movie, um, Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army is behind them. They come to the Red Sea and God tells Moses, like, raise up your staff. So Moses does, and the waters roll up like a scroll. So they roll back, and the Israelite army walks through on dry ground. And as Pharaoh's army chases them, the waters close up, and they get washed away. Um, what's interesting to me about that is the little detail that, that Moses is instructed, you know, raise your arms and hold the staff or whatever, and this is what's going to happen. And that's what happens. Fast forward 40 years. They wander through the desert for 40 years following God around. And they're about to go to the land that was promised to them, the promised land, modern day sort of Israel, that kind of landmass there. They're, they're about to go there, but to do that, they have to go through another body of water. This time it's a river. They have to cross through the Jordan River altogether. And God is going to do it again. God, 40 years ago, delivered by rolling back the Red Sea. This time he's going to do it again by rolling back the Jordan River. But the way he tells them to do it is a little different. Listen to how he describes it in Joshua um, chapter 3. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. First time they went through the water, they can stand there at the side, hold up their hands, hold up the staff, and the waters part. This time, God says, those waters will part when your feet get wet. You're going to have to walk all the way in there, and then it'll happen. Just imagine you're one of the people whose job is to walk down into that water that day. You're carrying the ark, and you're one of the priests, and you're like, all right, God says, this is going to work. Everybody follow me. We're just about, I mean, you're literally walking out into a body of water and asking a million people to walk behind you. It does not sound like a good strategic plan. 
And it would be way easier if you could just stand on the edge of the water, hold up your hands, and then it goes back. And then everyone's like, look, it worked. And off we go. But this time, 40 years later, as God is building a relationship with the Israelites, he's like, do you, do you trust me? Do you really trust me? I know I did that for you before, but this time you're going to have to get wet. You're actually going to have to get your feet in there. And I think there's something to that. It would have been so easy as an Israelite to be like, you know, we're talking 40 years. So if you're a priest about to walk into that water and you're 50 years old, the last time this happened, you were 10. And you probably, you may remember it as an important moment in your childhood, but there could easily be like, did, I, did that really happen? Did this, is this really going to happen? Is this going to work? And God's like, yeah, I want you to get your feet wet. And God could have done anyway. He didn't have to make them get their feet wet, but he asked them to do it because I think he wants us to take action. I think God wants to work in partnership with us. Yes, he's going to get all the glory. It's his power. It's not theirs. It's not their feet that make the waters roll back. But God is saying, I will work with you in this. I'm going to get the glory. I have the power. I will make it happen. But you're going to take a step, and I'm going to ask you to do it. And we're going to work in in faith. You're going to take a calculated step risk. So here's my question, and then we're done. What calculated risk do you sense God calling you to make? If you're not feeling the love, if you're feeling far from God, maybe it's time to take a calculated risk. Maybe it's time to step out. Maybe it's time for your feet to get a little bit wet. Pray. Seek godly advice. Make a plan. Take action. We'll see next week how this turns out for Ruth. But this is, this, is, this is how we do it. This is how we live in faith and take calculated risks. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the example of Ruth and Naomi and what they walked through and their willingness to step out when they didn't know how it was all going to work out. God, may we be the people who do that. Um, I Uh, May we be a church that's known for this, that we take risks, that we step out, that we don't just do what's comfortable and easy, but we really um, stretch ourselves. God, there's people in the valley right now. I I pray you, you shine some light this week and bring some hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.